Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Josie Warden, Associate Director of Design and Innovation at the RSA, and it's my great, great, great pleasure to welcome you to today's online event. If those of you watching along would like to join the conversation about the event, you're welcome to do so on Twitter using the hashtag RSA Climate or in our YouTube chat. I'm delighted today to have the chance to talk to Alice Ross, who's joining us to discuss the potential for green investing to accelerate our progress on climate change. Alice is Deputy News Director at the Financial Times, where she has been a journalist for more than a decade, covering topics from personal investment to globalisation. And in her new book, Investing to Save the Planet, she explores how we can harness our own economic power, be that small or large, to act on climate change by directing our money to more ethical and sustainable places. So thanks very much, Alice, for joining us today. Um, I'm wondering if I could start um, maybe with you giving us a quick overview of why you think this is such an important subject at this moment in time. Well, I mean, climate change, I mean, uh, I think the reason that I wanted to write a book like this, which was kind of combining climate change and investment, was that I was personally feeling quite quite depressed about climate change. It was just over a year ago, I think it was the summer of 2019, and it felt like there was a lot of bad news at that time. The Amazon was on fire. There were all sorts of warnings, and there was a lot of doom and gloom. And, you know, I, I have, like... A lot of people, I assume, watching this, take, I had taken a lot of steps as a consumer to try and cut my carbon footprint and all this kind of thing, but it just felt like it wasn't enough. And I felt like I really wanted to try and do something about it. And, you know, one thing I do know about is finance. And, and I thought, well, there are a lot of things going on in this area as well. And I think a lot of um, eco-minded consumers might not have really thought about that side of things. So they might not have thought that where they're putting their money can also be helping or hindering the climate change efforts. And um, so I decided to, to start researching it. I originally wrote it as a piece for the money um, section of the Financial Times, and then it developed into, into this book. Yeah, as you say, there's so much there's so much in this space, isn't there? So much richness that it can be quite hard for people to kind of get into it to begin with. So this is really great at kind of cutting through that and giving an introduction to, to people to think about where they can look with their own investments. Um, and you were talking about in the book that in recent years, you've seen more and more, I guess we've seen more and more businesses talking towards, uh, shifting towards the language of sustainability. And now increasingly in the, invest in the investment world, there are more funds that are available um, that are either labeled around sustainable or ethical practices. Um, but it can be quite hard to kind of pick through those, those kind of all those emerging funds to think about which ones are kind of really going deep into this rather than having a kind of greenwashing approach. How do you feel that people can really think about identifying where progress is being made as opposed to where some of it might be a bit more of sort of lip service? Yeah, I mean, I think greenwashing is something that I go into quite a lot in the book. It's sort of scattered throughout, I would say, when, when I'm discussing various things because it is very trendy at the moment. Um, fund managers and in the investment world talking about sustainability, you know, everyone knows that people are concerned about climate change and everyone knows that they need to at least pay lip service to it or, you know, show that they're doing this and that to cut their emissions. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of money in funds and financial products and they want to get your money, basically. They want you to give them your money rather than their rival fund managers. So they're all trying to sound as green and climate change friendly as they possibly can. I mean, it's not that different to the consumer world of, you know, products on 
the supermarket shelf or something where, you know, people are saying that they're very green and eco-conscious and they're not necessarily that eco-conscious. So exactly the same thing is happening in the fund management industry. The problem with that being that, you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with the jargon of the fund management industry. They find it to be quite technical. Um, you know, just choosing an investment fund is, you know, hard enough already without then worrying about, are they really thinking about climate change in the right way? And, you know, to be fair, it's not all the fund management industry's fault or they're not necessarily trying to mislead people or they're not necessarily trying to greenwash. There isn't actually, because this is such a new area, a relatively new area, climate change investing, the regulators and governments and the kind of people that decide what the rules are on this haven't, haven't really formalized any of this. So they're not deliberately saying, oh, it's an environmental fund and it's not that environmental. It just might be that they're using it in a different way to what we might intuitively think they mean. And, um, you know, I think the best example of this is really that in a lot of these climate change or environmental funds, you can find that they're holding BP, the oil and gas company, as one of their major stocks. And that just really surprises people when they find out something like that, because, you know, it seems to be completely contrary to what you would expect if you're investing in an environmental fund. But it's not necessarily that they're, you know, just completely lying about that and throwing BP in there for no good reason. It's that BP of the other oil and gas majors is doing arguably a bit better on that front in terms of trying to invest more in renewable energy and in terms of setting itself zero emission targets by 2050. You know, not every oil and gas company has done that. So sometimes fund managers are putting companies into these funds because they're doing better than their peers or they're making more of an effort to change. It's not necessarily saying this is a super environmental company, but it is rewarding them for the efforts that they're making. So it's these kind of things that that I'm trying to explain in the book and, and hopefully demystify it a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think this week, so I know the, the EU are creating a kind of green taxonomy around um, a kind of classification system to help, I guess, to help deal with that problem of it being very difficult to understand which, you know, which is doing better compared to others. Um, and this week in their 10 point plan, the government said that they're thinking about creating something similar. How important do you think that would be sort of going forward for people to understand where, where they should be focusing? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important thing. So the, the EU's taxonomy is coming out in March next year, or it's being put into effect in March next year. And taxonomy is kind of a weird way of describing it. I mean, they just mean like rules around, you know, what, how you describe something as sustainable or green. Um, but so that's coming out and that will be great. And it is aimed at, um, and it's also great that the UK is going to basically mirror that. So that's good. Um, it's basically aimed at... Um, yeah, making it harder for firms to greenwash and making it easier for consumers to understand what they're actually buying. And it's really needed, particularly in this space. I mean, we have seen some regulators and some people uh, warning that, you know, green mis-selling of products could become the next scandal um, because there isn't enough understanding around this area. So it is really great that they're stepping up and starting to put labels on it and hopefully you know, will then become become easier to understand. But even within that, there's still so many different ways in which the terms can be used that I think it's really helpful to just look under the bonnet and, and make sure that you're personally happy with what you're investing in. Because 
a lot of this stuff is personal preference. Um, as I discuss in the book, some people are divesting altogether from oil and gas stocks because they don't want anything like that in their portfolio. And that's fine, but other people want to engage with the oil and gas companies and be you know, a voice that can talk to the management and try and encourage them from within to change. And both of those options are totally valid. And there are funds, products, ways of investing that can address either option but you need to make up your own mind. You know, it doesn't matter what rules the regulators come up with, but you still need to make a choice within what's available and, and understand why you're investing in certain things. Yeah, I think that's really important. It comes across so well in the book of understanding what, what your preferences are and whether you're comfortable with things, because it can be so hard to navigate this space. And as you said, the kind of language, even in that example, the taxonomy, the kind of the language is can be very um impenetrable sometimes so kind of making sense of things is really important and understanding whether it's relevant for you um you talk there about divestment and you talk in the book about the sort of differing opinions around divestment i'm wondering if you could kind of expand a little bit on those different opinions um that you, that you lay out in the book hmm. so i mean divestment is actually quite a controversial way of um approaching climate change investment it's Intuitively, it seems like the first obvious thing that you would do and financial advisors that I've spoken to say that that's usually when someone comes in and says, I want to invest with climate change in mind. The first thing they want to do is sell their oil and gas stocks. So it's sort of the first thing that people want to do, but it's not necessarily effective. Um, it's, it depends why you want to divest. Basically, if at the moment, if you sell your oil and gas shares, the reality of the investment world is that someone else is going to come and buy them. Um, you know, we're, we're just not at a place where globally nobody is going to buy oil and gas stocks. It just, you know, sadly perhaps doesn't work like that. Um, so it's not necessarily going to harm the company if you personally divest your shares. Um, but there is some evidence showing that with these big divestment campaigns where, you know, a lot of... Um, where you see university funds or pension funds, quite high profile funds, for example, Cambridge University just very recently um, said that they're going to divest out of oil and gas stocks. All of these talking about it sort of puts pressure, not on the companies as much as the government and the regulators to, to do more around this area. So it's very similar to, um, to consumer boycotts because there as well, researchers, not necessarily shown that if consumers boycott something, it directly harms the company, but it's more about the, the mass movement of it and changing the conversation rather than one individual act of not buying a certain product. And it's exactly the same with, um, with the fund management industry and, and selling and buying shares. But another reason for divestment is that increasingly we're seeing professional investors being quite concerned about buying oil and gas stocks because the, the investment returns are going to probably be not as good as they have historically been. So usually these kind of companies, BP and Shell, have been really great dividend payers. And that's great for you know, retail investors that want an income, particularly in retirement. So they've always been um, really popular companies that income funds will hold. Um, but you know, that's looking under threat. You know, the dividends have been obviously under threat this year with, with the pandemic. And you know, that only really looks set to continue as regulation increases on, on them. And, uh, you know, their business models are really struggling with the potential world where we're all moving to 
zero emissions, they are trying to invest more in renewables, which is good, and they are trying to reduce their dependence on oil and gas, but they probably won't be as good investments for the future. So regardless of the moral case for divestment, um, that's another reason to divest, which isn't the sort of obvious one. So that's kind of some of the stuff that I'm discussing in the book is that it's not, you know, the question of should I divest? There are various aspects to it. There's the investment aspect, there's the moral aspect, there's what are you even trying to achieve through that. So I sort of discussed some of those points as well. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a really fascinating conversation. I think so at the RSA, so our, the fund that we, we have investments at the RSA divested last year to the decision. Um, and similarly from our from the kind of fellows, we've had different responses around like, this is great to see you doing, others saying actually perhaps the engagement is more important. Um, so I think on that engagement point, given how many how many companies there are out there, oil, oil gas, et cetera, companies, um, how many asset managers, um, how feasible do you think it is for people to, to kind of hold their asset managers to account around engagement, particularly perhaps if you're a kind of a, a retail investor side, is the kind of scope to be doing that, do you think, or is that quite a big, a big challenge for people? No, I mean, I think it's definitely possible. You're seeing, so on the, um, I mean, so one of the basic ways in which we mostly hold a fund to begin with is through a pension fund. And often that's gonna be through a company pension scheme, basically. So these funds will often offer you a choice of various funds. And usually one of those is going to be a sort of ethical fund. Um, we haven't actually used the term ESG chatting together just now, but I um, assume people are mostly familiar with it. It stands for Environmental Social Governance. So it covers a lot of different types of companies, not necessarily those operating in climate change, but, but all climate change type companies would probably be in an ESG fund. Um, so you probably get offered one ESG fund at the moment by the pension scheme. Um, and what they're seeing, the pension fund providers that I've chatted to for the book, is that there is this increasing pressure right from the bottom, from the employees and companies to get better options through their pension scheme. Um, to be offered perhaps a choice of more than one ESG fund. And you can do that by, you can either write to your employer and say, look, have you, have you really thought about the, you know, the pension fund manager that you've gone to, you know, have you shopped around? Are you offering us the best choices in terms of ESG? And um, you can also write directly to the investment managers. And I think, I think that they're very, um, they're very aware that this is something that people are increasingly demanding and that it looks bad if their record isn't very good. I mean, a, a classic example of that that we've seen this year is BlackRock, the largest investment manager in the world. Um, it has a lot of, um, I mean, it has a stake in probably almost every company in the world because it operates a lot of passive funds, um, but its record voting as a shareholder in these companies has been on the poor side. It's been criticized for not voting on even climate change related resolutions enough because shareholders of companies need to tell companies when they're upset about stuff. Um, otherwise nothing's going to change. And BlackRock has been accused of greenwashing because it says that it's very interested in pushing for climate change and, and making change happen, but it doesn't vote at any of the, well, it does vote at some of the companies, but it doesn't vote enough and certainly not as much as many of its peers at the companies that it's holding shares in. And it's, it's, it's recognizing that it's being criticized for that. And that is going to be a trickle down problem for them if pension funds don't want to allocate their money to BlackRock, 
And if retail investors are aware of it and don't want to buy, buy investments in their funds, so they do have to be aware of, um, of what even the, the sort of ordinary investor on the street thinks. Um, and you do have a voice. I mean, another way in which you have a voice is that you can get involved in um, share action type groups, which pool the views of small shareholders and then, and then they can tie them up with larger shareholders, professional investors as well, and file resolutions at companies. So you do have a lot more power than you would think. Um, and you know, the fund managers are concerned about, about their image on this front. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think like that kind of collective pulling together and, and communities who are making change seems really important to this, that kind of acting individually, it's hard to see where change might happen, but it's when the kind of mass of change starts moving that you get to see those changes. So this year you said that um, fossil fuel stocks have done badly, poorly, mainly because of COVID. Um, do you think that you could see um, momentum around divestment continuing a kind of shift away from these, these companies and therefore impacting um, bis the businesses at access to capital or their kind of liquidity? So rather than just the kind of virtual si virtual signaling side, actually impacting their ability to access capital? Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is one of the big questions with divestment in terms of does divestment actually harm the company financially? Um, because in theory, yes, it would sh send the share price down, it would affect their ability to, to raise funding, it would affect their ability to get banks to lend to them. Um, and again, we, we sort of, this is the issue of is collective action enough? Um, because at the moment, it's not necessarily having a direct impact um, because of this issue that other shareholders will often step in to buy the shares if they think that they see value in them. Um, you know, that's kind of the way that an efficient financial market works usually at the moment is that if, if something seems undervalued, someone will come and buy it. Um, so in the short term, it's, we're not seeing it have that effect yet. That said, um, some of the oil, gas, oil and gas companies are concerned. Um, Shell has said that it, you know, divestment could have a material impact on it. Um, although I think that was one of those things where it just sort of lists vague risks rather than you know, being majorly focused on it as a risk. Um, but you, know, you have also seen this with um, the coal companies. So there was a move, divesting out of coal companies has been a lot more straightforward as a, an argument to make in the past few years. So a lot of people that haven't necessarily divested out of oil and gas have divested out of coal because the future for coal is like much less, there's hardly any future in coal really. Whereas oil and gas companies, there's probably further to run. Um, so as we've seen the regulation clamp down on the coal companies and investors sell out of coal companies, um, we have seen coal companies, you know, going bust or really struggling. And we have seen their share prices drop massively, but it's, it's all sort of, it's hard to say where the cause and effect is coming in because the regulation has been stricter on coal companies and the end is more clearly in sight for coal. Whereas oil and gas, it's, it's still in this transition period where things are being clamped down on, but not ended. So in terms of harming the share price or cutting off their cost of capital, it's not happening yet, but it no doubt will at some point in the future. Yeah, that, I think that's really interesting, that sense of the, the, the sort of short-term and, and long-term uh, impacts around things. Um, how do you think, it feels like a lot of the system, the finance system as it is, is geared to the sort of short-term returns. Um, what changes do you think are needed for 
the whole system to be working much more around the kind of long-term impacts. And I think as one example might be, you mentioned um, like passive or tracker funds earlier around the kind of increased um, prevalence of these, but actually what they're then doing, I suppose, is kind of working on past performance as opposed to kind of investing for, for investing for the kind of changes you might want to see in the world. So how do you think that kind of what, what kind of things could, could support um, more long-term thinking and this kind of action for change in the future? Yeah, I think the whole issue of past performance and and immediate goals is quite tricky. Um, you see this actually, uh, particularly in the unlisted space. So you've seen it with venture capital and private equity. So the kind of investors that are backing companies that haven't yet listed on the stock market. Um, and this has been a real issue with clean energy technology type things. So um, in the in the first decade of this century, you did have a lot of wind and solar um, investments and venture capitalists were pouring into those kind of things, but they didn't make any money um, in part to do with issues around, around the market and the fact that governments were subsidizing these companies and it wasn't cost effective. But, but also it's been argued that venture capitalists were the wrong kinds of investor to be giving these kind of clean tech companies their money because they want to see typically a return in five or seven years or something, certainly within 10 years. And a lot of clean technology ideas, certainly a lot of these um, solutions being developed in climate change require money for a longer time period. And so it could be that this new wave of investors that's taking more of an interest in it and you know, has, the, has sort of patient capital to wait it out, um, which can be you know, family offices, it can be pension funds, uh, longer term institutional investors, um, that, that this is what the market really needs to develop. This is one of the arguments that you see. Um, Bill Gates um, actually has set up this um, fund called Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and that's backed by a whole load of billionaires. And they've all put a lot of money into um, backing new technologies that are going to be used to help solve climate change issues. But they're, they're wrapping their money up for 20 years. They're not expecting to see a return for 20 years. So that's great. Not something that's op uh, that's available to sort of your average retail investor. Um, you know, usually a retail investor needs to wait for a, for a fund, for a company to be listed on the stock market before they can really sort of consider buying it depending on their risk appetite and how much money they have and, and things like that. But, um, what you know, once these companies do get to market, then other people can, can get involved as well. And, and happily, we are also seeing that there are plenty of options in the listed market for retail investors to get involved as well. So, yeah, you talked about the like energy being one of these one of the market areas that is really interesting for for the kind of investments that we're looking at. Um, and you talk about a couple of others. One, if you could expand on other areas you think are kind of opportunities for investment, really shape helping to shape the future that we want to see. Mm. So there's, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting innovation going on in transport, um, of course, with electric vehicles. Um, that's an area actually which is quite helpful for investors in that governments have put pretty rigorous targets on when electric electric vehicles are supposed to be rolled out and in what capacity. Um, we've seen as well this week, um, Boris Johnson has said that, uh, that, that there's going to be a ban on new internal combustion engine cars and vehicles being sold from 2030 now, it was 2035. In fact, quite recently it was 2040. So the timescale is moving quite fast on that. So, you know, as of 2030, we're basically going to be driving electric cars, um, which sounds great. 
and is great. But, you know, there's a lot of investment required around that. And there's a lot of things that need to happen for that to, for that to be effective, which is great for investors because there are all sorts of companies around these kind of ideas like, um, you know, battery technology, infrastructure, um, trans transport infrastructure companies that are going to enable all of these electric cars to be driving around and parked and hooked up to the grid. And, and but there's, you know, little battery makers for, for cars and, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with small companies that you would probably never have heard of at this point, but they're all springing up to try and meet this, you know, predicted new demand. Um, and that's something that investors can definitely get, get involved in. Um, some of those smaller companies at the moment would, would, you know, still be at the startup stage or venture capital or private equity, but they are getting bought by the larger, um, by the larger companies. Uh, for example, you know, BP has recently bought an infrastructure company in, in electric vehicles. Um, so, you know, there are those opportunities for, for investors at that early stage to make some money. Um, another way is to invest in, in companies that are trying to, trying to cut their emissions more generally. So you don't necessarily have to be looking at companies that are doing something crazy with solutions to climate change or, or you know, some mad idea. Just as important is the sort of less sexy areas like energy efficiency, um, all the circular economy, recycling, waste companies, all of this kind of stuff is really important, but perhaps less exciting than what we see in like electric vehicles. Um, but, but that is equally really important. And the good thing there is that a lot of the companies in that space are already really big listed companies. So if you're an investor that doesn't want to take too much risk, that's a better way probably for you to get involved than you know some venture capital or startup level. Um, food technology is another one that's really fascinating. Um, I, I went to a, um, a presentation from a, a startup company. It was actually for angel investors. Um, it's actually for female angel investors who wanted to invest in female founded companies, which is quite cool. Mm -hmm. And um, they were inventing it, it's a sort of a cell-based meat um, technology, which is, so it's not like beyond meat or um, alternatives to meat in the sense of some pea protein burger or something. It's actual meat that they're growing in labs and they sort of take a few cells from a living animal and then they clone it or develop it somehow in the lab. And they will make an actual steak or an actual piece of meat that people can then eat. and but no animals are harmed in the process. And then of course, because it's not a natural animal, you don't have all of these issues with um, cows and pigs grazing in fields and, and all of the emissions that are associated with that. So, you know, there are a lot of companies doing stuff like this, which is really fascinating, but a lot of them are at the quite early startup stage where it's not clear who the winners are going to be and there's going to be a lot of losers. So some of that stuff is almost like gambling at the moment if you're an investor. But if you know, if you had money, money to gamble and you wanted to take a punt, you could, but you should be aware that it's, uh, it's more gambling level of risk sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that that, I guess that's that forefront of investment is also that forefront of those big innovations in society and uh, even more of those kind of ethical questions too around that meat example, like where we're trying to figure out what we want to do next. So it seems like a really exciting place to be. Um, but also really interesting, you're saying around, we, at the RSA we do a lot of work around circular economy and I think it is often like thinking about that space that it's not always the kind of, some of it will be new innovation stuff, but other things we'll be thinking about actually how can businesses across the supply chain change what they're doing to be able to 
um, either be more energy efficient or really just change their system so that they're thinking about how they design things differently. So I think it's exciting as well to point to those opportunities that are not just about those new innovations, but actually about how can you see this across all sectors? It's not just a kind of energy tech going to fix it, but across all sectors, which is good to point out, I think, to people. Um, and I think, I guess on that, do you feel like uh, the changes that are happening within within the investment space are, um, are kind of radical enough? Is there, does any of this amount to kind of tweaking around the edges? Do you feel like there's more kind of dr like drastic stuff that the finance sector could, could be looking at if it was to really trying to be sort of shaking up how we, how we set up our economy and our societies in the future? Mm. I mean, yeah, we definitely go further and faster. I think what is interesting is actually how how fast things are moving. You know, even since I wrote the book in May, or you know, I, the book is out in November, but I you know I finished writing it in May, and even in those few months since then, things have already moved on in terms of regulation, in terms of major companies announcing changes, announcing zero emission goals, and that's the pace of changes is really interesting on that front. Um, and, you know, that more and more fund managers and professional investors are saying that they're going to, to actually make changes and to actually invest with climate change in mind. I think it is easy to be cynical about the financial industry. And, you know, I am obviously cynical to a certain extent. But at the same time, I do think that, you know, climate change is such a serious issue that, uh, you know, and you have younger people now in these companies in fund management as well. And, and they do genuinely believe that this is an issue. So, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, I think. So maybe I'm being a bit naive about it, but I think, I think things are moving really fast. And the, the real change is going to come from governments and regulators who make the rules that the fund managers then have to follow. And if they can really tighten those rules up to make greenwashing harder, to make fund managers have to pay more attention to ESG. You know, we've already seen that um, with, you know, pensions now have to take, pension fund trustees have to take ESG considerations into account when they're selecting investments. That didn't used to be the case until very recently. So we are already seeing regulations shape how the financial industry thinks about this. And um, yeah, I think, you know, things are moving in the, the right direction. Of course, they could move in a better direction or they could move more quickly, but... I think things are moving in the right direction, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I guess you, and you've obviously spoken to lots of different people um, in the course of writing this book, but also across your career. And do you think that do you think that mindsets are sort of genuinely changing within the industry around our relationship to the environment? Um, you mentioned there kind of young, there's maybe the younger um, generation or the sort of uh, new people coming into the industry have got different ideas. So on that as well, do you feel like there's enough kind of professional development and education to support these kind of changes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, on the, on the issue of thing of the conversation having moved on for sure. I mean, I started covering finance, I think in 2006. And, you know, back then, we didn't have the term ESG, it would, was it called SRI even back then in 2006? It, it was, you know, ethical or sustainable investing. And it was very much seen as something that you just did if you were, you know, not that interested in real investment returns, you know, that you were restricting your portfolio and you were restricting your investment returns because you cared more about the environment than you did about investment. And I don't think that's, well, that's just not a theory that you hear anymore at all. Um, you do hear, well, you do hear it in some pockets, actually. I think some people are still concerned that there's an element of giving up 
um, there's an element of restricting your investment universe if you're investing ethically, but those concerns actually aren't founded. Like a lot of, a lot of surveys have found that there is no, you're not necessarily giving up returns at all if you're investing with the environment in mind, which is really interesting. And I think there's a lot more consensus that that is in fact the case. There's a lot of research going on on these topics at the moment, of course, but it's becoming much more mainstream to assume that that's not the case. And in fact, you are seeing a lot of mainstream fund managers who aren't even plugging an ethical or an environmental product really thinking about climate change in the way that they invest, which I think is quite a clear sign that it's being taken as a serious risk to investment generally. Um, I'm thinking of Chris Hone, you know, the, um, the hedge fund manager, and he, uh, you know, he doesn't have an, an environmental fund as such, but he's been really vocal. He's been a hugely vocal professional fund manager in saying that the companies he invests in need to disclose their climate change risks. They need to say what they're doing about climate change, how they're going to, you know, manage those risks. And because it is a serious risk. And I think professional investors more and more do understand and see that. So it's not just, it's not just investing environmentally, it's actually investing because climate change is, is here to stay and it is going to affect every company in some way. And so we, we all need to take that into account when we're looking at our investments. It's not some niche area that you can choose to ignore anymore. And I think, I think people are really waking up to that in the fund management industry as, as elsewhere. In, and do you think there is the kind of um, support or education, et cetera, to kind of support that next generation of, of well, and I guess continuing the, the professional development of existing managers as well to help yeah. them kind of understand how to navigate that? Yeah, I, you know, I suspect probably not enough, as, as is always the case with these with these issues. Um, but you know, certainly that should be something that is hopefully happening within within investment houses. But yeah, that should definitely be a priority, especially if they want to if they want um, retail investors to really understand what it is they're selling to them or what what it is that they're putting their money into. Then they need to understand it themselves as well. And you know, I'm sure that that often isn't the case um, enough or as much as it should be. Yeah, it's challenging, isn't it, when it's a, a kind of a, well, it's a, an emerging area. There's a lot of kind of, there's so much knowledge that has to be gained and developed and, and progressed over time. Um, I really like what you were saying just then around, I guess, that shift from seeing this as a kind of niche area or an area that you're kind of, you're opting out of things and trying to do less harm into actually how can you, um, how can your investments help do more good, whether that's across the environmental, social governance aspects of things. And that's something that I guess we're really interested in the RSA of this move from when we think about the environment around doing less harm to actually creating systems and processes which can enable good things to come out and create the conditions for these new emerging ventures. Um, and you talked about a couple of things that you've seen as part of the, the kind of research. Was there anything that you found kind of particularly exciting about ventures that you saw or ideas that you saw coming through? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so well, you're seeing some interesting stuff in the sort of philanthropy, uh, the philanthropy space. Um, there's a company I spoke to, um, Prime Coalition, which is actually based in the US, and they have rounded up philanthropists who, who would like to make a financial return, but are happy to back a company at the beginning that may fail because they believe in the in what they're trying to achieve with climate change. So they'll, if a company, for example, needs a certain amount of money to prove that its technology will work, you know, this is a key thing. If it's a certain technology that will, that could, you know, help to lower emissions across an industry or something, it needs to be 
proven first before the next round of investors will step in. So in order to get venture capital, you'd have to have something to show for it. And so sometimes they just have a blueprint or an idea. And then it's, you know, at that point that a lot of companies can never sort of get to the next level because they don't have the, the money to prove that the idea does work. And so these guys, philanthropists slash investors, are giving these companies money at that early stage um, to prove that the technology can work. But they know that they could lose their money and they can afford to do that. But, you know, then sometimes it does work and then those companies can go on and, and you know, attract venture capitalists, attract private equity, and then, you know, eventually go on to list on the stock market or, you know, actually make a difference. And so sort of awareness around the around what these early stage companies sometimes need um, is great. I mean, you know, you've always had that in finance, of course, but I think the fact that it's it's so mission driven with with trying to solve climate change, I think it's making making different types of people, more types of people take interest and say, well, this is where I should be, you know, putting my money, not necessarily into some some other random idea that isn't necessarily connected with climate change. Yeah, that, I think that sense of mission is, is really interesting. And as you said at the beginning, that maybe most people haven't, or many people have not thought about actually how their money is connecting to things that they they might really care about in, in the world. And I think it's really nice that you end each of your chapters with examples of things that people can do or questions that they can ask. Um, so I guess as a way to kind of kind of wrap that up is that are there things that, that you would recommend um, people to do as a kind of, as a takeaway of thinking around what they can what they can do next? Yeah, I mean, I think I think thinking about some of the well, the first thing you should do is talk to financial advisor, of course, and and work out what your risk level is, and work out why you're investing your money. I mean, I think this is something I think my friends, because they know that I sort of know about finance, will say to me like, where should I, what ISA should I buy? And I'm like, I can't, I can't just tell you that because I don't know how much money you have or how you feel about it, or you know, it's they think. They think it's just a simple question of what do I buy or what do I invest in? And it's never a simple question anyway, regardless of thinking about climate change. But it's more, even more so with climate change because there are, as we've discussed, these issues that are quite particular to climate change investing. It's how you feel about divestment, how you feel about engagement with a company, um, what kind of technologies you're interested in, um, what's your risk level. So you need to ask yourself all of these kind of questions. Um, I mean, I think an interesting place to start is with your company pension, probably, if you have one, um, to look at where it's invested. You can always get the fund fact sheet for existing funds that you have, and you can look at the top 10 holdings. And then you can look at, you know, does that match with what you thought you were investing in? Because often it doesn't, you know, often, as I discuss in the book, we do see these examples of companies where you're like, why is that in an ESG fund? Why is that in a climate change fund? And then you need to understand what the fund manager is trying to achieve. Um, you know, it's probably not in there for some totally bogus reason. There's probably a reason why it's in there, but it, you might not feel comfortable with it. So you can go through your existing investments in that way. And, you know, hopefully having read the book, you'll understand some of the different strategies that the fund is taking. You'll probably be like, oh, okay, this is that kind of ESG fund, not the other kind. And so that it'll be easier to understand what you're actually holding. And then you can make a decision as to whether or not you want to move out of it. If it is a pension fund that you hold through your company, you can write to the company and say, you know, I want different options. And if enough people do this, the company might switch provider or the pension fund provider itself might see that it needs to offer more options and which they are aware of. And so you can, you can get involved in that way. 
if you decide not to divest, if you decide to engage, you can join shareholder action groups. There's one in the UK called Share Action, and they pool lots of different, lots of individual shareholders, and they can file resolutions at really big companies. They filed a resolution at Barclays Bank earlier this year um, on climate change resolutions, so you can get involved that way as well. And then after that, it's just a question of, of how much risk do you want to take? What excites you? Um, but also being sensible, you know, it might really excite you that there's a, you know, a company trying to grow meat in a lab, but that might not be great for your risk profile. So you might find actually, you might get really into the circular economy and buy a couple of massive listed companies that are doing a lot in that area, which might not sound as exciting, but are really match your risk profile and are going to give you a decent income, that kind of thing. So, but you know, it's also about, I think, getting inspired by what so many companies are trying to do to, to address climate change, which is, you know, as I said, why I wanted to write the book. And, and I did find the whole thing really inspiring, finding out more about what people are trying to do. So that was great. Great, thank you. I think that that kind of leaving that people on that sense of actually just asking questions is really important too. Like asking questions of your employer, asking questions of the, the pension company, because as I said, it feels like the kind of groundswell of people taking action is what's going to change a lot of this. So the more people can do to, to start that ball rolling or to take it further if they already have done that, the better. So thank you, Alice, for taking the time to talk to me today. It's a really informative book and takes a look at the pragmatic steps that we can take to tackle the climate emergency and use what, how, what control we have to kind of exercise influence over the an issue which can often feel very much beyond our control. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you to those of you watching as well. And I hope our conversation today has given you an idea of the sorts of insights and advice that you can find in the book. Um, Investing to Save the Planet, which I really recommend, is out now. And information about where you can get hold of a copy will be in the sidebar chat here and also on the RSA event social media account. And please do keep up with the RSA channels for updates on further conversations like this, as well as fresh insights from our policy research teams, and particularly the Regenerative Futures Programme, which does our work around circular economy and climate, um, and as well as information around how you can get involved with the work of our Global Fellowship. So I think we're going to wrap up now, and thank you so much again to Alice, Ross, and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.